0: Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, seventy-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's *Guilt*. That's G-I-L-T a comic book that's Sex in the City Meets the Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitneycom guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. <music> All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is Atos, your No One Can Hear You Scream in Space speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, we're talking about The Dry Salvages by Caitlin R. Kiernan. This is a book that was published in 2004, and this book came in second in our Patreon poll, and for good reason, I think. I, I really loved this book. And we've done some Kiernan before on the network. We've we've done the Ammonite Violin on Elder Sign, which is our, our weird fiction podcast. We love that story, too. And in fact, as I'm recording this, she has another story on the Elder Sign ballot. So by the time you're hearing this in the future, it's possible we'll have covered even more of her work. And I kind of hope that will be true. I was aware of Kiernan before we began podcasting and had probably read some of her work in various Years Best anthologies. But I had never gone to her with any intentionality before, but I have loved everything that we've read for the network, and I feel like I need to make up for lost time, so I do hope that we'll get more of her uh, in the future on Elder Sign or here on ATOS. But on the note of making up for lost time, I think we should just dive right into this book. So let's do it. Let's dive into The Dry Salvages. The Dry Salvages is a space horror story. We're going to follow the crew of a spaceship as they head out into the, the vastness of space and discover horror. This is a wildly popular genre, of course, especially on screen. I mean, you can think alien franchise here. But it is also popular in literature, where I think Stanislaw Lem's novel Solaris is a great example. But Kiernan is a real writer's writer, and The Dry Salvages is a masterclass in how to write something that feels fresh in a genre that is really quite well-tread. The book is a first-person memoir. It's an account by a survivor of the incident and, of course, we won't find out what that is until the last pages, and it is full of pathos, and and also just full of a ton of gorgeous writing. All right, so here's the setup. It is the early 24th century, and Audrey Cather is an old woman now, and she wants to finally explain what happened out there. The mission in question happened a long time ago, at least 40 or 50 years ago in Cather's life, but in absolute terms, nearly a century ago, back in the 2230s. And that's because Cather's life has been extended due to the effects of relativity We'll get to the details of the mission in just a moment but I want to talk first about the frame the the fictional present day of the early 24th century and, and really I'm just mirroring Kiernan's own narrative structure here because uh, what she does is delay and delay giving us details about the mission in what uh, is a, a real page turner because of all of that delaying uh, let's start with the small and then we can move out to the bigger picture. First and foremost, Audrey Cather, who is a retired exopaleontologist, and you know what we mean by that is that she studies fossils on planets that aren't Earth. Audrey Cather is making a living now in part through a small stipend that she gets from the space program, but then also in part from money that she makes giving public lectures around Paris, uh, lectures concerning her former professional field. Now, this space program is a global space program. It's very similar to the United Earth Space Probe Agency of Star Trek's fictional history of these exact same centuries, I'll say. But even though this space agency is international, there is no United Earth government. There are still independent countries, though there do seem to be fewer of them than there are in, in our real world. And the European Union, for example, seems to uh, seems to have become more expansive and more centralized, such that people now identify as European citizens. Uh, Though I will say that I'm simplifying that a bit as well. So as I have hinted at already, the space agency possesses a propulsion system that is far beyond any of our current technologies. It's a propulsion system capable of getting close to light speed and therefore capable of sending human missions to other solar systems. But of course, missions like this experience time relativity and they require decades between the launch of the mission and the mission even reaching its destination, And that means that the space agency has to plan and also think long-term, that it is is tending a lot of fires that have been burning for a long time. And because it is supranational in scope, and because it is thinking long-term, it is extraordinarily powerful and seems really to be something of a shadow government for the entire world, at least in certain matters. And that fact provides the impetus for this memoir to begin with, Audrey Cather is not allowed to talk about what happened on the mission that we will eventually hear about. So she is monitored constantly, and and there is always an information officer at her public lectures. Everything she says has to be vetted, and 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 so on. And this is a digital world, very much like our own, and and so her activity there is also monitored. Her online activity, we might say, and even if she wanted to keep a private diary on a laptop or a cell phone, the space agency would know about it, and as a result. They would take away her freedom. But she does want to keep a diary, or really, what she wants to do is write a memoir of what happened on this mission, and that means that she has to track down some old-fashioned paper and pens in order to, to do that without detection. And this was hard work, and it was also very expensive. Uh, this also provides one of the gimmicks of the book, which is that she only has three pens with which to write this memoir, so she needs to be careful about digressions, and, and each of these pens is going to uh, represent one of the three sections, really one of the three acts of the book. Even though she does have to be careful and does have to be focused, we do still get a lot of digressive material about the world of the 24th century. But I'm going to talk about all of those details in the themes and motifs segment. Here, though, I will mention that one of Cather's neighbors in her apartment building is a sentient robot who appears as a child. Her name is Zora, and she is Cather's only friend. They play chess together and they talk, and Zora occasionally asks questions about the mission. And in the middle of the narrative, Cather begins to address Zora as if she's actually the intended audience for it, and I'll have a lot more to say about this too. In fact, robots are going to feature quite a bit in the narrative itself, but let's start at the beginning with that. So Audrey Cather is an exopaleontologist, and she works on Europa. It turns out that there used to be a lot of life there, uh, though nothing sentient and and no big charismatic animals that we we might be hoping for. Uh, She's working on Europa when the space agency announces the discovery of genuine sentient life, an alien civilization elsewhere in the galaxy. Now, there's been no contact, no communication, uh, nor even any evidence that this civilization exists now. But there is evidence that they used to exist. At at least there's that. And this evidence comes on a moon around the planet Kikrops, which is a, a gas giant orbiting Gliese 876. And this is a real star that really does have a planetary system. And two of the four known planets had already been discovered when Kiernan wrote The Dry Salvages, the other two after that. So, the inciting incident here is that a human mission to Gliese 876 has confirmed the archaeological remains of an alien civilization on this moon, which is called Pyrrhos. Now, those remains are not of an indigenous civilization, but the remains really are of what looks to be an interstellar mining colony. So, it is still not at all clear where the home civilization was, or, or, or is, hopefully, And the knowledge of this dates back decades by the time the announcement is actually made to the general public. And it seems even that this discovery and the launching of a human mission to investigate all of this was really the secret impetus for the unification of the Chinese and American space agencies, uh, the unification to form the super powerful space agency of the frame narrative. And of course, there is now a need for more scientists on Pyrrhus. And so another mission is being planned and Audrey Cather is going to be on it. And really, the, the first pages of the book detail Cather coming out of a cryogenic sleep of 17 years as they are approaching Kikrops and, and Pyrrhos. She and the other three human crew members, they awake to the news that something has gone very wrong on the first mission, the, the mission of the spaceship Gilgamesh, which is a great name. No human members of Gilgamesh's crew are available to communicate with this new mission. This new mission, by the way, is on the spaceship Montelius. So. It's only the robots, the the androids, who are still in operation over on Gilgamesh. But this is a very recent development. It's it's only a few weeks in the making. Some of the human crew disappeared on the planet itself a few weeks ago while they were down there investigating a a new and amazingly robust archaeological site. Two other human crew, though, are still on Gilgamesh. But they've locked themselves away, and they have given orders to the androids not to let the crew know certain things about the planet— At least, that's what the androids are telling the crew of the Montelius. Naturally, this is suspicious, because we've all seen 2001 and Alien, so we know that this is going to mean murder bots. And it is, but not until near the end. It turns out that the androids are telling the truth, and that it is actually the human crew who's the impetus for their strange and suspicious behavior. The new crew does talk with what's left of the old crew, the Gilgamesh crew, but it doesn't go well. They're told about a self-contemplating shadow that is a virus of the conscious mind. And it wants something. And the new crew definitely shouldn't go down to the surface. After this meeting, the crew of the Montelius debates whether they should just nope out of here, or if they should go down to the surface to investigate. Of course, they should leave, but of course, they're not going to. And this is where we get the murderbots. But the twist here is that the murderbots don't have free will, even though they do have sentience, or, or at least something close to it. They've been programmed by the crew of the Gilgamesh to kill all the humans so that no one back on Earth will know anything about what's happened here. And of course, we the readers still have no idea what has actually happened here either. So we're in the final bit of the mission narrative now, and then we'll have the conclusion of the frame narrative as well. They go down to the surface and they find the the shuttle, but not the crew members. They play back the video log of this away mission, and mostly it's a garbled conversation about a self-contemplating shadow. It has people shouting things like, look at the sky, and it's some sort of weapon, and look away. But of course, we don't really see any of what's going on. And the truly frightening part is that there's no power on the shuttle. And so they couldn't actually have played that video log. And indeed, they didn't. Everything they think they just watched on TV was actually just in their minds. In fact, it turns out that they were never even on the shuttle. They were only ever just standing in open space on the the planet's surface. So clearly, it is time to go. It is time to get out of here. But before they get back to their own shuttle, they see it and they're never the same again. They do make it home. They make it back to the solar system, but they are never the same again. And, and half the crew kills themselves. Uh, and this happens to two more ships before the space agency stops sending them out to investigate all of this. And that's it. That is the end of the story. But we do need to conclude the frame narrative. Before Catherine is able to finish writing her tale, the space agency police arrive, and they arrive with Zora. You see, she's been an agent of theirs the whole time. She's been keeping tabs on Audrey Cather, and so they have known about this journal since she began keeping it. And so now she's going to have to live under house arrest until her trial, which will be at least two years from now. But in the meantime, there's no reason that she can't finish the journal. In fact, they'd like her to. For posterity. Okay, those are the plot points. But what is Kiernan doing with the story? What is it all about? There are three ideas that I want to explore here in our Themes and Motifs segment, and I will save the biggest for last, and that's going to be loneliness. But let's start by talking about the speculative world here, this speculative future Earth. It is a depressing world. It's a depressing book, too, by the way. And I want to look at some of the elements that Kiernan uses here to create a world that feels cold, a world that feels isolated, a world that is going to reinforce that sense of loneliness that will make our third topic here. This is a world that still very much feels like our own. Uh, there, there's so much about it that is familiar. Paris is still here. It's, it's still a great intellectual center. The, the Sorbonne is still in operation. It's still a draw for students from around the world, uh, even if the political institutions on the earth have changed. We've seen already how the Space Agency has become something of a de facto world government. And of course, there is some resistance to this as well. There are conspiracy theorists and activists and terrorists, all of whom believe that Earth shouldn't be poking around out there, shouldn't be putting out a welcome mat for cosmic horrors. And indeed, one of these people is briefly a character in the book after she asks Cather a question about the the mission, the mission in question here during one of her public lectures. We've also seen that the space agency's bureaucracy is something of a a Kafkaesque nightmare, and maybe intentionally so. And so there's a, a tinge of political dystopia here in the book. But far and away, the largest and most important element of this speculative future is climate change. This is a world that has gone through it and and come out the other end much changed. And Kiernan masterfully builds up this world by showing it to us exclusively through Cather's eyes. And so we don't get any long paragraphs that explain to us the history of the centuries that separate our world from this speculative future. But we can piece together quite a bit of information. Most importantly, the Atlantic Ocean climate system just collapses, and the physical systems that have kept Western European winters quite moderate compared to other places with similar latitudes is just gone. The Parisians at least call this the cold. That's a proper noun there. That's in caps. Uh, and they think of this as when the cold came. And now the the winters are harsh, uh, seemingly very much akin to the types of winters we used to have when I was growing up in the Great Lakes, and I cannot envision any Parisian tolerating that. Because of this change, it is quite rare to have a clear sunny day in Paris, even in the summer. The inhabitants talk about the rare sky day, when they actually get to see the sky, when it's not covered in clouds. And this fact intersects with the story in two ways. First is that the cloud cover appeals to Cather because she's developed a fear of the stars since the mission. And now because she lives in Paris, she never has to see them. And the second thing is that it creates a really powerful atmosphere of freezing gloom. In what most of us think of as a beautiful and vibrant city, Paris today in our world is bustling. If you went outside in Paris at this very moment, no matter the season, no really no matter the time of day, there would be people out on the street, and there would be people loitering at the outside seating at cafes. That might actually depend on the day a little bit, I guess, the time of day a little bit. But even in winter, there will be people at those cafes. But all of that is gone now because of the cold. It is a city of isolation now. It's a lonely city, a city where people keep to themselves and they keep inside their own apartments. And we'll come back to that. Kiernan brings climate change into the narrative of the mission of Pyrrhos, too. It's not just in the frame story. The reason that Audrey Cather is going to Pyrrhos in the first place is because it is rich in fossils, even though the planet itself is now dead. And here's what Cather writes about this. This is this is brilliant. For almost 5 billion years, life flourished in Pyrrhus' seas, and perhaps on scattered chains of volcanic islands. And then, in less than 100,000 years, the seas dried up and the moon died. And Catherine has more to say about this, but she stops herself here because she's wasting ink on insignificant details. But the parallel is clear. And there is also the question of the alien civilization that had been using Pyrrhus as a mining colony. Where did they go? Why has their spaceship been sitting on Pyrrhus for 10,000 years? Before I move on to our next topic, I I do just want to mention that this dystopia, this future where there is something of a police state and where the climate has totally broken and the world is much diminished— It is situated firmly in the same period that Star Trek is set. And Kiernan uses the phrase 23rd century a lot in this book, just to make sure that we're aware of it. And so she is, I think, drawing an intentional contrast with the optimistic vision of the future that we get in Star Trek. I think that's a brilliant move. But all right, let's get to our second topic. Let's talk about personhood. This is a book with robots in it. And one of the questions that our characters have is whether these robots are people or machines. Of course, because our story actually takes place over the the course of a little more than a century, we're able to see the development of robotics. And certainly by the time that we get to Zora in 2303, she seems very human. And she even operates as a person out in the world. She has an apartment. She has a business. She has hobbies. She's a friendly neighbor as well. But still, Zora is well aware of the fact that she is not fully human, and she even feigns certain human attributes, and in particular, she pretends to have an imperfect memory, and she does this in order to seem more human than she really is. On top of this, though, she does have some legal rights as a person in some parts of the world, though it's not entirely clear if here in Paris, here in the European Union, if she is a citizen, by which I mean whether she's politically enfranchised or not. But she does lament that she is a second-class person, if she's even a person at all. And of course, she has either been a tool of the space agency all along or, and this is what Cather surmises at the end, she was recently reprogrammed by the agency to be used this way against her will. In either case, though, the de facto world government clearly does not treat her like a sentient being with rights. Uh, But of course, this may actually just be a feature of the political dystopia and not representative of the culture as a whole, uh, because they don't really treat Cather very much like a person either. And thinking of the culture as a whole, we do get competing views about robots within the crew of the Montelius. Uh, one of these crew member, uh, Peter, uh, Peter is terrified by the news that the robots are now in charge of the Gilgamesh. Uh, he's terrified that the robots won't explain what has happened to the human crew, uh, because you know, I guess he's seen all the same movies that we have. But another member of the crew, Uma, and we're going to talk about her in just a moment. Uma dispassionately explains that they are simply machines that can only do what they've been programmed to do. But when we actually encounter the robot captain of the Gilgamesh, she also seems very much like a person, and she seems like a person with emotional motivations, not just programming. On top of this, when she turns into a murder bot there at the end of that part of the narrative, she gets a little speechy. She explains that this is not the course of action that she would have chosen, but the human crew of the Gilgamesh programmed her to do this, to be a murder bot as a failsafe. And if the crew of the Montelius had simply turned around and gone home instead of investigating, she would not have had to kill them. She wouldn't have had to become a murder bot. And her, her name is Evelyn, by the way. Evelyn finishes this up by saying, it's a terrible thing to be denied free will. Can you imagine that? And there is a real agony in this line, in this clear indication that Evelyn has desires. Uh, Evelyn has values, in fact, but she cannot choose her own actions. She cannot act against her programming. Now, of course, she's trying to murder our protagonist here, and we don't want our protagonist to get murdered, but in this scene, I really feel for her. I I definitely see her as a a person, a, a person who has been enslaved, really. And I do think that we see that attitude develop on Earth a century later by the time that we get to Zora. But all of this development in robotics, all of this change is in the book just very subtly. Kiernan only ever gives us hints of these developments and changes. She doesn't ever spell things out for us. This is a wonderful touch. I loved it. But we need to talk as well about Umachandra Murden, who is another member of the the mission, an important member of the mission, because she is not fully human, at least not genetically Her parents were part of what's called the post-humanist secession movement. And again, we don't get this spelled out for us, but I think we can infer here that what this is was a movement to genetically modify humans with useful attributes that can be found in other creatures. And this may, in fact, have arisen as a response to climate change, finding different ways to adapt, different ways to, to live in the climate that is now inhospitable to humans. But this wasn't done in labs. It wasn't done by scientists doing experiments. It was done by regular people undoing their own genetic code and then replacing it with something else, even though they knew that this was very definitely going to kill them. But before they died, but but after they have done this, but before they died, they would reproduce. They, They would have a baby whose DNA would contain elements of these other creatures. It was very rare, though, for these babies to survive, and this movement doesn't seem to have lasted very long, and we know that it ended with riots and a quarantine in New York City, so it was uh, it was a big deal, but it is now a historical moment. It's not something that's ongoing. But Uma Chandra Murden did survive and is a strange hybrid humanoid. She is mostly human, genetically, I mean, but she is also part squid and, and maybe other things, too. She has unnaturally quick reactions, she doesn't suffer during the cryogenic sleep the way that the other members of the crew do, and Merton looks different as well. Her skin is not the color of any other human, and she's too tall. But she also has deformities, and here's how Kiernan describes her. The twisted, uneven mass of flesh just above the base of her spine. Big around as my wrist, and sprouting from her thoracolumbar fascia like a tangle of unfinished tentacles. Or the dozens of perfectly formed suction cups scattered across the backs of her legs like some strange rash or malignancy. I love the beauty of that description and the vocabulary there is marvelous, if extremely difficult to say. You have no idea what take that is you just heard, and I still know I didn't nail it. But Merton, of course, right, she's going to be regarded as strange and alien, and her life might have been quite hard and quite isolated if, in fact, the space agency hadn't taken an interest in her, which is because they want to experiment on her, of course. And while it is never fully a discussion topic in the book, her presence here is meant to get us, uh, meant to get, you know, the readers to, to wonder whether she really is human. And we do have a character call her an alien. So, what does it even mean to be human then, right? This is a question that simmers just below the surface of the story here. Is Zora a human? Is Evelyn? What about Chandra Murden? And how can we tell, right? Where is the line? How do we distinguish? How do we make distinctions? All right. I know that I'm running long on this episode, but I do want to at least talk just a little bit about the theme that really ties all of this together, and that's loneliness. Our protagonist, our narrator, is an old woman. An old woman who lives alone with three cats she doesn't even like. Because of relativity, she's outlived anyone she knew before the mission. And two of the four crew killed themselves. Uh, That was Peter and Uma Chandra, by the way. And Joaquim, who was a lover of hers for a little while, is just not a part of her life anymore and, and can't be. Audrey Cather's only friend is a robot. Audrey Cather's only friend is someone who may not even be a someone, and who very likely is only her friend because she's spying on her because she is programmed to do that. Cather is alone in the world, and alone in a city where people have to keep indoors because it is always winter. She does go out, of course, but her job is to give lectures to an audience, right? It's it's to talk to a mass of strangers and to do that in her professional capacity while an intelligence officer makes sure that she doesn't reveal anything personal about herself so that people could never possibly piece anything together about the mission. She has no connections with anyone, and at the end of the story, she's placed under house arrest. She's not even gonna be able to go give her public lectures anymore. And we see connection at the core of the monster story as well as a sort of central theme there. When our protagonists arrive on the Gilgamesh and talk with the the two people who are left of its crew... They're told that the thing that they found down there, this shadow of a shadow, they're told that what it wants from them is communication. It is a virus of the conscious mind, and it wants to infect them because it wants to connect with them. And the only safety is isolation and loneliness, and that is a bleak and dismal prognosis. But even though the words bleak and dismal can describe so much about this book, I really love this book, and and, and I hope you can tell how much I love this book. The writing is so beautiful. I've read a little bit of it already, but none of the really gorgeous parts. So, so let me give some examples, uh, and we, we could just move fully into our strengths and weaknesses segment here. So here's the, the first passage that I want to read for you. Almost a week has passed since I began writing these things down. I usually write late at night when I can't sleep, and the sound of the wind and the snow at the windows makes me dislike the darkness of my bedroom. I have a writing desk in the front room, and I sit here in my robe and slippers and try to remember what happened next and next and next after that. And I love this passage because of the evocative description of Cather's daily life and the isolation and the loneliness of it and just the interiority, the the window into the narrator and even into the process of narration itself here. It's a beautiful passage. But hey, we are talking about a space exploration story here. So let me give you some descriptions of exploration as well only a few rungs down, a few racing heartbeats, a few seconds. And then I was standing on one of the wide quarry terraces, all the way from Florida to that lifeless patch of rock beneath the morbid light of Gleese 876, all the way to stand in the late afternoon of a day that might as well have been a night. I looked up, towards the opposite rim of the pit a few hundred feet above us, and then walked as near to the edge of the terrace as I dared, and stared down at the ebony pool filling the faraway bottom of the quarry. Seeing it, its mirror-flat surface, seemingly immune to the wind that howled through the gash in the moon's crust, I felt dread and loneliness and despair. So here again, we've got a real interiority, even as we are getting the first description of an alien world. This description is more about what it felt like than about what it looked like, and the whole book is like this. And I have to say that sentence for sentence, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And I'm here for prose. I think you, you know that by now. So that is all I need for this book to be awesome, for me to love this book. But Kieran is also a master world builder, and I loved getting to know this speculative setting through the small clues that she drops, really, and the, the digressions that get interrupted just as they're getting going. This is something that draws me in. It's something that makes the world believable for me. The last thing I'll say here is that the, the pacing and the structure are also superb. Kiernan teases and then removes. She teases again and then she removes again. And this keeps us turning the pages. It keeps us anxious. It keeps us eager to find out what happened on the mission and also what happened every step of the way. It is all of it just masterfully done. Well, that is going to bring my review to a close. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I focused on, but especially on what I left out there was a big thing that I did not get to in our discussion here. I mean, in our our themes and motifs segment, and that is the title. The Dry Salvages is a poem by T.S. Eliot, a poet whose works have meant a lot to me over the course of my life, but especially in the army. And I would love to talk about that poem. I would love to talk about its relationship with this book, what are the parallels that Kiernan is drawing between the two stories? And, and maybe we could even talk about the circumstances of that poem's composition during the Second World War and, and see if we have any any parallels, any connections there as well. And I would be really excited to have that conversation. So I do hope that you'll come talk with me about this on the forum. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. And next time, we're going to be reading the last book selected in this Patreon vote, and that is the high fantasy novel, The Deep by John Crowley. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.